0: Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week.
1: Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful.
0: So now we invite you to join us as we together
1: listen, listen for, for the, the
0: word. word. Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast today. We are um, working in Luke 24 verses 13 through 35. This might take you by surprise. It took me by surprise that this is what is the Revised Common Lectionary since we are in the year of Matthew, and we've done some John, but we're going to head to Luke. Um, and so, Alan, explain this one.
1: <laughs> oh, well, I, I, don't, I don't pretend to be able to make sense out of the logic of the Revised Common Lectionary. It seems like they just automatically jump to John for Easter in all three years, and they just work in Luke. Wherever they can. And so this is the this is the only time when this particular passage comes in to the um, Revised Common Lectionary. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're switching gears. Um, maybe we're stripping gears by <laughs> moving from John's gospel back to Luke's gospel. And I personally think it's confusing to people in the pews when stories get put together in this kind of piecemeal fashion because it really encourages them to harmonize the yeah. story. Yeah. And if we're trying to give each gospel um its own do you know th- then then you know if we're if we're following the lectionary it kind of work at cross purposes there
0: yeah i agree i agree well this is one of our favorites though nonetheless and i'm yeah, sure it's definitely. one of yours too and this is the um the uh disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. mass
1: yeah and this this passage is a, is at the same time it's unique in the gospel tradition only luke reports this story but it also utilizes key elements of the Easter kerygma as it is attested in the New Testament, like according to the scriptures mm-hmm. and on the third day. So, mm-hmm. so there's some key elements from the Easter kerygma from the New Testament in this mm-hmm. passage. And it has been treasured, I think, by many in the church mm-hmm. because of the personal nature of the narrative. I you think know? it's just a very personal apparent story of, of of Jesus appearing to these two disciples
0: i I agree it's it's been one of my favorites always mm-hmm. in fact, I was kind of surprised it here it is only once Yep. um you know it's 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 one that I feel like I must read every year because it's so um
1: instead we read John's John's passage is every year. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, as in all the Gospels, Luke's narrative of the resurrection begins with the discovery by the women of the empty tomb. This is in Luke 24, Mm -hmm. 1 through 12. But in Luke's Gospel, it's important to note that the empty tomb does not lead to understanding on the part of either the women or the disciples. Mm -hmm. And that's also kind of fairly consistent across the board with the Gospels as well. But this is going to be a major theme, this lack of understanding in, in Luke's narrative of the resurrection in Luke 24. And the key to understanding is going to be all the scriptures as interpreted by Jesus, his ministry, and his message.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, how does our actual lesson today begin with this, this background?
1: Well, it begins with a reference to what has already happened, actually. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So, you know, the, all these things refers back to the, to the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that same day refers to the first day of the week in Luke 24, 1, when the women went to the tomb, and in fact, in... Luke twenty four. All of the events that are narrated in this chapter take place on this one day.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've been thinking about this recently. Actually, it's 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 how this is all so pushed together.
1: I mean, even there's there's even a, 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 a reference to, the, to Jesus' ascension at the end of the chapter, mm. you know, and so it's it's really compressed. And, uh, you know, when you compare it with Acts 1, we're going to find, you know, Acts 1 talks about Jesus appearing to them over the space of 40 days. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's an interesting, it's just an interesting twist in the narrative. Uh, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, two of them refers back either to the apostles in Luke 24.10 or to the 11 and to all the rest in 24.9. Now, logically, when you have uh, um, you know, some sort of indefinite pronoun like that, uh, it usually refers to the closest antecedent, and that would be the apostles mm. in Luke 24.10. But here, one of the them is named Cleopas in verse 18. And, and since none of the disciples went by that name, it seems necessary to broaden the reference to all the rest of Jesus' disciples. So that the two of them is two of the rest of Jesus' disciples who were gathered with the apostles. And of course, we recall that um, Acts numbers the group at about 120 in all in right, Acts 115. Right,
0: right. I listened to a, a sermon once, and that particular pastor decided it was Cleopas and a woman.
1: Well, that's been a tradition. There have there have been people who have who have presented that as a possibility, and who knows? I mean, part of that I think is due to some harmonization going on because Cleopas sounds a lot like Clopas, and um the 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 wife of Clopas was one of the women, right? right? Mm-hmm. So so that could be where that came the, from. The, the, that that actually happened in the in the in the. Early church tradition, mm-hmm. you know, and so that happened early on. But um, well, it's yeah. interesting
0: that he mentions only one name, right, and not the other two, right. which is often happens to women as well. Right. So that I mean, right. obviously, I'm going to like that version of the story, but
1: uh, you know, I, I the other the other one is unnamed, and so we don't know if it's a it's a man or a woman. Yeah, right. Yeah, so. Now it is significant that Luke introduces these two disciples of Jesus as going. And we may recall that mm-hmm. the narrative of the journey to Jerusalem, we, we spent a lot of time in that journey to Jerusalem section of Luke last year. Uh, that's a significant section in Luke's gospel and it is where Jesus more fully instructs his disciples. That was the main point of the journey narrative in, in, in Luke's gospel. And furthermore, you know, if we move on to the book of Acts, the journey motif is also a prominent feature there. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and one of the things, if we if we were to pay attention to all the verbs that describe movement, we would see that this passage is full of, of verbs describing movement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, um, I think it's Joel Green who suggests that perhaps the original audience was intended to anticipate this as a scene of further instruction mm. because of the movement and the journey motif. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah I like that. Um, so, they're headed to this town called Emmaus. Now, right. it's... Is that Jerusalem? Is that part of Jerusalem?
1: It, no, it is not. It is, It is. Um, it is. And, and we don't really even know where Emmaus was. Uh, there are several possible locations all to the northwest of Jerusalem. Um, the, the, the Greek text says that it was 60 stadia from Jerusalem, oh. which uh, the New RSV translates into about seven miles. Okay. Uh, but um, the and there is some textual variant variation there there are some versions some manuscripts that say 160 stadia which is it that's a that's not a major variant but but it does exist but I think the constraints of the narrative though they walk there in a day and they run back to Jerusalem or they, they go back to Jerusalem that evening way in favor of the fact the that it, sh- yeah it's 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 going to be closer location. not farther mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: mm-hmm. Um, and so um, how do we how do we kind of move into the scene?
1: Yeah, and it's it's really kind of interesting, I think, how Luke does this because he rather nonchalantly introduces Jesus into this yes, story. He does right while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing mm-hmm. him. Um, There is some irony here, and really it kind of persists throughout the rest of the story because they were discussing all these things that had happened, implying what had happened to Jesus. of course. And and of course, Luke explains their lack of understanding by telling us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And I found it interesting, Mm -hmm. the Greek is is krateo, which means to seize or grasp or hold. And so the idea is that they were held back from, from recognizing him. One of the things we're going to see in this narrative is that sight, and really in in in, chap, in chapter twenty four of Luke's gospel, sight plays an important role in Luke's resurrection narrative, and is part of the eventual resolution of both this narrative and of the problem of the disciples being mm-hmm. able to recognize mm-hmm. Jesus and understand that he is indeed, right. you know, the, the Messiah who had, was to suffer and 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 then enter into his glory. Mm-hmm. Um. So then when Jesus joins them, he asks them, what are you discussing with each other while you were walking along? In verse 17. And, and this stance of feigned ignorance contributes to the irony as well because really only Jesus right. is the one among them who knows the truth right, of right. the events they were discussing.
0: Well, you know, and it, I think it seems like, you know, I always used to I always joke with myself. If I saw a very famous person walking down the street, I would be clueless. My eyes would let me down because my brain would be, why would somebody be walking down the street in the middle of Nebraska, right? And I think there's some of this maybe that goes on. I mean, I know they give this credit to Jesus, but I think there's also something just about um, uh, why would they recognize him? In their minds, he's dead.
1: I mean, the the implication is that that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That passive may be kept by God. From right which makes him.
0: which makes sense mm. right i mean it makes sense yeah
1: but because there there's there's in luke's gospel there's more that has to happen besides just the empty tomb right. and besides just the appearance of jesus right. for them to really get what's going on here
0: exactly we exactly. talked a little bit
1: about that last year but we're, we're going to go back yeah. into that this today okay yeah
0: um and so um how do they respond to jesus's question
1: well interestingly at the end of verse 17 it says they stood still looking sad which to me is almost kind of a a, a statement full of pathos i mean you know Mm -hmm. it's like wow they're really they're really in -hmm. a bad way Mm -hmm. but this sets up the expectation that for all their discussions really these two you know for all their discussions that they're having among themselves these Mm -hmm. two disciples still don't understand and so then Luke tells us that one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him in verse 18. And this is the only place where Cleopas is mentioned in the New Testament. Again, as I mentioned earlier, in, in the effort to explain all uncertainty, the church fathers identified him with the Clopas, right. who is mentioned uh, in John nineteen twenty five. But there really is no reason right. to make this connection.
0: It, it, you know, you said this with about the early church. It sounds to me like this, though, has been kind of dropped as an assumption. It was the same person, even though the church fathers did. It
1: depends on the setting. I think there are some people in in very traditional circles who may still may still um, make that assumption. Okay, but I, I would say um, more informed biblical scholars would not.
0: Would not. Yeah. Well, it could be, but they don't have any. Proof. I mean, there's right. You're drawing speculation. Speculation. Yeah. 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 That's right. So, um, how? What does? How did these these sad looking people respond?
1: So, it, it really, again, highlighting the irony of the situation, Cleopas asked Jesus, "Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem <laughs> who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days?" <laughs> well,
0: and that's interesting because it all happened on the, well, I guess on the same day, but they could have meant the whole trial and everything. And that, yeah, like, exactly. Okay. So,
1: so you know, the 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 last week yeah. and, of of Jesus' life, and and you know, it had been it had been you know, so Friday was the day of the crucifixion. Right. This was Sunday. Sunday.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: Now, again, it's, iron, it's ironical because Cleopas assumes that Jesus is a stranger or a foreigner visiting Jerusalem, again, emphasizing their inability to recognize Jesus. And, and then, of course, Jesus just simply responds, what things? Again, feigning <laughs> into ignorance, and, and Luke tells us that something I found really fascinating, they replied. So it starts off with Cleopas talking to mm-hmm. Jesus, but then they replied, and that introduces a summary of Jesus' ministry, his death, their dashed hopes, and their confusion about the empty tomb. And, and you know, while if you read the summary, it's a, cohe- it's a coherent statement about all of that. Jesus' ministry, his death, or dashed hopes, and the confusion about the empty tomb. Nevertheless, you know, and we would we might think, well, this was just something that someone said to Jesus, but it says they replied, and so it would seem that we're to envision um, the situation. Uh, both disciples were responding to Jesus at the same mm-hmm. time, maybe mm-hmm. even talking over each other, right? And right. so then, as Luke is going to do a lot of in in Acts. Mm-hmm. We this is this is just kind of a summary that Luke has crafted uh, right. of what these two disciples might have said to him, and so uh, so this is something we're going to see in the book of Acts. You know, right, yes. we we really the, the the so-called speeches or the sermons in Acts, mm-hmm. we really should not see these them as verbatim um, uh, transcripts of right. what was actually preached, but rather it's a it's a it's a a summary that um luke presumably has crafted um that fits in with the themes of the narrative
0: it does we you know we just did that last week with the college students you know why why is this story in here and then repeated Mm -hmm. and why does luke present it that Mm -hmm. way yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah um and so this finally kind of gets us though to uh, to some of the uh, some of the meat
1: yeah yeah and so they again answered jesus uh, when he asked them what things by saying the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, the fact that they refer to Jesus as one who was a prophet mighty in word and deed before God and all the people not only recalls Jesus' inaugural address at Nazareth, where he announced that he was the one anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to be the agent of God's favor mm-hmm. uh, in Luke, 14, in Luke 4, 4, 18 through 19, but it also alludes to the theme in both Luke and Acts of Jesus as a prophet like Moses. And so, you know, the fact that he was mighty in word and deed and in word, these are things that are said about about Moses as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and so this is an interesting feature of Luke's um, presentation of Jesus this this concept of, of Jesus as a prophet like Moses is is an mm-hmm. interesting feature
0: yeah there. absolutely
1: but but then and of course because they saw him as this prophet who was mighty in word indeed mm-hmm. there thus this is the basis for their hopes that Jesus was the one to redeem right. Israel and there and that these hopes were founded on themes prominent in Luke and Acts but the fact of his is being condemned to death and crucified, effectively crushed their hopes because they were not prepared to combine right. Jesus' prophetic ministry with his suffering. Right. And we're going to find that this is going to be one of the real interpretive keys in this passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was nothing in their tradition that prepared them for a suffering right. Messiah. And right. this is part of what Jesus is going to do for them. He's going to put together the concepts of
0: suffering and the yeah, Messiah. Yeah, yeah. So, and it, it, this is just also brilliantly put together. Mm-hmm. Um um, when you think about it, because we know the story and we know the experience of the story, but yet to make sense of the story, which I think people still tr- struggle with today. And so here Surely. it is. Surely. Here it's laid out for for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now, the summary continues with the events of that day. Um, They go on, "...yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some of the women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that, that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive." So again, um, the fact that they mention that it it is now the third day since these things took place—the third day was, as I said, was a well-established element in the Easter kerygma of the New Mm -hmm. Testament—and the fact that they mention it may refer back to the angelic reminder that Jesus told them um, that while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day rise again. So this is the angelic message at the empty tomb. Mm-hmm. Luke's gospel is rather unique in that because the others say, you know, why do you look for the living room and the dead or something like, he is not here, he right. is risen. Uh, in, in, in Luke's gospel, the, the angel says, um uh, remember what he said. He right. told you while he was still in yes, Galilee, that he yes. must be handed over to the hands of sinners, be crucified and on the third day rise again. So this is the second time in Luke 24 that we have this phrase on the third day. Mm-hmm. And you know, perhaps we're, we're to see this as maybe a potential for understanding, simmering within right. them as they were processing all that had happened, but the crucial factor, that would enable them to understand at least in Luke's narrative had not yet happened and that was that Luke uh, Jesus had to open their minds to understand right, the scriptures right right you know.
0: right so very fascinating um.
1: again though the the empty tomb here is something that creates astonishment but not understanding you know they refer to the fact that the women went right. went to the tomb didn't find his body came back told us the scene of vision of angels you, you know it, it creates astonishment but not understanding or mm-hmm. not faith um, but even though it would appear that these two disciples went beyond what the stance of disbelieving that Luke attributes to them in response to the women's report in, in Luke 24, um, 1 through 12, when the women go back to the, to the others, they, Luke says they were disbelieving. Mm-hmm. And, and this seems that, well, maybe at, at a later point, then some of them at least went to the tomb to check it out. Right. So you know we don't even have that. Only Simon goes to the tomb. Right. In the early in the in the empty tomb narrative of Luke twenty one one through one through twelve preceding this, but apparently there were some others who also went to check it out. And so right. this also kind of hints at a little more openness than you we originally heard uh, in, in the in the previous section of Luke's gospel.
0: You know, as I'm I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking of Luke's audience and I'm thinking of him putting this together, I, I think there really is, um, and even with people we work with, just a disbelief of, of what had happened. Mm-hmm. It just uh, it doesn't make sense. I can't make sense of this. I mean, we hear this today. I mean, right. you hear this today amongst atheists. Well, no savior is a suffering savior. Just, it doesn't equate. So here it is spelled out for us. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. Luke was very much in tune with the need for this to make sense. Well, um, and
1: I, I, think, I think it's also significant. That all the gospels demonstrate that, you know, present Jesus' own disciples as not, not believing.
0: Oh, yes. We always you talk know. about them being clueless, right?
1: Well, yeah. And they're, they're still clueless. Yeah, they're still and, clueless. And, and, right. and, and they don't get it. And they don't understand. They don't believe. They're astonished. They're bowled over. They just don't get it. And in every case, something else has to happen for right. them to come to faith.
0: Right, right, right. So we move on.
1: Yeah, and so the, Luke then reports Jesus' response to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe <laughs> all that the prophets have declared. Mm-hmm. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there it is. Now, this may seem strange to us, but it goes along with the theme of irony in the ancient world. And uh, Alan Culpepper, in his um um, contribution to the Gospel of Luke in the New Interpreter's Bible talks about this: that uh, in the ancient world, it was it was a, a, um, um, an ironical theme that the unknowing stranger turns out to be the one who has the answer. Mm-hmm. And and so um, that's what happens here is that, that this quote unquote unknowing stranger is the one who really knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, the translation foolish, how foolish you are, I think is unfortunate. The con- connotation is more like uncomprehending. That's mm-hmm. We might say dense.
0: <laughs> I like uncomprehending, really. Yeah, because yeah. it's
1: literally anno etas, not understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not comprehending.
0: Foolish, that is a very different connotation. Foolish has a different
1: connotation in yeah. English, yeah. On the other hand, slow of heart to believe is much more significant and really shouldn't be downplayed. It really calls attention to their (laughs) failure to truly align their hearts and minds with the ways of God's kingdom. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, we've had this whole drawn out, journey narrative in, in the Gospel of Luke and that has all been devoted to trying to teach the disciples about what's, what's going on mm-hmm. here, and they've been through all of this, and still they don't get it, right?
0: And, and, now, part of it's where I'm at today, and, and just thinking about a sermon that I've crafted for um, confirmation class. Um, and thinking about discipleship. But there's something really, really honest about this, about our human nature not to believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I I really like that this is here. It just reminds you of the best of the best, the disciples still aren't getting it, and their hearts still aren't truly... Really- in tune with it right, and i think right. it's really human
1: <laughs> well and one of the things i've often said to people is <clears throat> you know we tend to think that oh if i had only been there and heard him with my own ears and seen him with my own eyes and touched him with my own hands it would be so much easier to believe nope these yeah. are the guys who were his exactly. followers these were his ministry apprentices and they didn't get it
0: exactly yeah, yeah that's a good point yeah
1: yeah So the implication then seems to be that the Messiah, like all previous prophets, was indeed destined to suffer. And that doesn't invalidate their hopes. And that's the point that Jesus is going to make. But rather, the fact that the Messiah suffered should have confirmed them. But they needed help to put together their hopes regarding redemption and Jesus' suffering. Mm -hmm. And so Luke tells us that Jesus provides that help. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures, in verse 27. And so Joel Green, I'm gonna quote a couple things from Joel Green. Joel Green says, the key to making sense of the death of Jesus lies in construing it within the matrix of the scriptures, Mm -hmm. and that's very central in Luke 24. We're gonna see that even, we we saw that last year when we looked at the the latter part of Luke 24. But, but beyond that, he also says what has happened with Jesus can be understood only in light of the scriptures, yet the scriptures themselves can be understood only in light of what has happened with Jesus. So the, it's mm-hmm. the confluence, really. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of the hermeneutic of right. putting them together, and Jesus is the one who puts it all together yeah. for them. Yeah. So again, we may, as we have said many times, we may never know which scriptures he cited, but the point seems to be that Jesus connected for them the idea of the suffering, suffering. prophet with the idea of the Messiah, who yeah. is the agent yeah. of God's redemption. Yeah. They couldn't make that connection. For us, it seems logical, right? Because of the centuries of Christian right, tradition. Right, of
0: course, but right. But for them,
1: it didn't make any sense. There was right. no tradition that prepared them for that. And so Jesus makes that connection for them through the scriptures.
0: Right. And well, and, and and I agree. It makes sense to us who are Christian. Right. It does not make sense to people who are not Christian. Right. I mean, right. that's that's what, I mean, part of that's what's so amazing about it too, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's, but you're right, it's a...
1: It's counterintuitive. It's
0: counterintuitive. And and I think the question is, can you believe what is not believable? Right. I mean, that's the thing, what God does here.
1: Right, Mm -hmm. right, right. Now, I think if the story had ended there, it would have been significant, but very much incomplete. So Luke goes on to recount the proper conclusion to the story. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, verses 28 and 29. And this sets up the situation in which Jesus will not only open their eyes, but also connects this story with the meals that Jesus had shared with many in Luke's gospel. And I think it also seems no coincidence that, it was in it was in their act of extending hospitality to this stranger mm-hmm. that they recognized him as Jesus
0: i was going to make a big deal out of, out of that myself yeah. like this um, you know the, the, you can easily jump over that and i think that's mm-hmm. a very significant
1: point i think it is too mm-hmm. i think it is too so then luke recounts the situation at table in a memorable fashion when he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them in Luke twenty-four thirty. Now, unfortunately, I think the fact that the Christian liturgical tradition has associated these words with the celebration of the, sac- celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper leads to the fact that many are drawn to see this episode as having Eucharistic mm-hmm. overtones. Jesus is present with them in the Lord's Supper. And while that is true, it is true that the that the church has throughout history experienced the presence of the living Christ in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The wording of this passage is actually closer to Jesus' miraculous feeding of the multitude mm. in Luke nine sixteen mm-hmm. than to the Last Supper. And so, I think it would be better to frame this episode in terms of the idea that, as Alan Culpepper says, it every meal has the potential of becoming an event in which hospitality and table fellowship can become right. sacred occasions. That is, an event in which the presence of the risen Lord can be experienced. Mm-hmm. And we should recognize that the breaking of bread not only became an important part of the life of the early church, in the early Christian community, but it's also a theme in right. the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. I, I think what we can say is that when they sit at table, Jesus changes roles from being the guest to being the host. And then in doing so, he reveals himself.
0: Yeah, yeah it's that's that's really awesome but yeah. i i agree with all of those things and i do think well <laughs> i would say part of the challenge is um, a protestant understanding versus a roman catholic yeah, understanding yeah. and when you take this and you make it to a mass it, you lose this mm-hmm. reference to this to um uh, what well Culpeper's talking about here which is that that these breaking of bread together are Im- important themes of um well, sacred occasions. Every meal. Every exactly. meal has has sacramental right. overtones. A- in a sense. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think I I think I would say this Roman Catholic Church there that has kind of unfortunately pulled restricted those. Apart, that, restricted that yeah, thank you yeah, is that's sure, the term. Sure. Yep.
1: So then Luke tells us that their eyes were opened. And again, I think we should say presumably by God again. If their eyes were held back from recognizing him, that was by God. If their eyes were open, it was presumably by God. They recognized him at long last, but that at that point he vanished from their sight in verse 31. And in response, they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within mm. us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? Again, emphasizing the transition from uncomprehending astonishment to the joy of revelation. I think the language here is more evocative than analytical it's really sort of more from an emotional stance, yes, a I feeling agree. stance than, a, than, a, than, a, than a, you know, trying to explain it. And But think about it. I mean, how does one explain the process by which the opening of one's eyes to the word of the Lord, whether in scripture or in teaching or in preaching, moves us? I mean, how do you explain that? You know, how do you put that into words? Mm-hmm. Now we should recall again that in Luke's resurrection narrative, it takes more than the empty tomb and and even more than the appearance of the resurrected Jesus to change the disciples' bewilderment from, from disciples' bewilderment into faith. It takes Jesus opening their minds right. to understand the Scripture,
0: right? Which is really really interesting. I mean, theologically, that's that's where does faith come from, right? Mm-hmm. Is it Jesus' faith in you? Is it kind of coming down, or is it coming up from? faith that i claim and i grab
1: well here it's here it's the work of jesus uh, you know the the living word speaking through the written word
0: (laughs) i know i this is really i mean this is really a big deal and i i i think it's really really important Mm, i mean i agree um, this
1: is this is central and this is this is sort of the 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 point this is one of the main points of Luke 24 is that this is what it takes to come to faith in the risen Christ. Mm-hmm. It takes the living Christ speaking through the, the living word speaking through the written word, you know, the living word enlightening, opening your yep. eyes to be able to understand the written word. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yep. And yet I can't help but go back to they invited Jesus to stay with mm-hmm. them. Right. Of course, and course. so it, it's not that the action did that, but that it, it was certainly the, set it up. It was the it was the full openness of their hearts absolutely right yeah, so sure. it's a very interesting nuance that of,
1: open-handedness of hospitality
0: right yeah, yeah, right created
1: the situation right cuz i
0: you know, of course we don't know but to speculate what if they wouldn't have invited them they were you know and what an interesting speculation sure right sure
1: <laughs> so then luke concludes by telling us that these two disciples returned to Jerusalem that same hour which was already almost evening as we heard before uh-huh and implies presumably that they ran back to the others. And when they got there, they weren't even able to tell their story before they were told themselves, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon Mm. in verse 34. And again, the significant conclusion to this unique resurrection story is that uh, they told the apostles and the others what had happened on the road and how he'd been made known to them in the breaking of the bread in verse 35. And again, I think, this again, the, the focus on the breaking of the bread anticipates the life of the community in the book of Acts, which was centered around the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and the par- prayers, according to Acts 2.42. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And so we don't quite conclude till we go to the next episode
1: yeah so in the following episode i think we're going to see again that luke will emphasize jesus role in opening the disciples minds there while he opens their eyes mm-hmm. in in our in our lesson today in the, in, the, in the episode that follows, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures in Luke twenty four forty five, And this leads to his declaration that thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem mm-hmm. in verses 46 and 47. I would say those two verses are a summary of the thematic Uh, maybe the hermeneutical key (laughs) that that was missing from the disciples being able to understand everything that was going on. This is the hermeneutical key right here. This is Mm -hmm. the key that unlocks the door. And this then becomes the focal point of the mission of the church in the book of yeah, Acts. Yeah, um, and, yeah. And so, um, you know, the fact that the Messiah is to suffer is the interpretive key that opens the disciples' understanding of all the scriptures. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned a couple of years ago, you know, it's, you know, approaching the, the Hebrew Bible through the lens of Jesus can be tricky if you try to read uh-huh. Jesus into every nook and cranny, um, but um, it is essential for a Christian to read the Hebrew Bible, both in its original context and in the light of the interpretive lens of Jesus' life mm-hmm. and teachings. And that's one of the main emphases of Luke 24 is that you know, we have to look at all Scripture through the lens of Jesus' right. life and yes, teachings. Yes,
0: yes, 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 yes. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Thank you. My friends, we're back and we're going to shift gears and again, maybe strip our gears a little bit because <laughs> I'm not sure we're ready for what the uh, reformers are going to deal with. But yeah. uh, Christy is going to lead the way. So go ahead, Christy. Well,
0: as I was um, reading this today and, and reading some of the things and particularly looking at um, the institutes and this this became part of the argument for um, um, for the Eucharistic controversy and what happens to christ's body and it becomes important in the lord's supper so i'm taking a very different direction on this and i think unfortunately what i'm telling you takes us very far from the intent of the passage right but yet it does give you some of the things that the reformers are really really worried about um, and probably the the number one thing i would argue that keeps not only the reformed and uh, not only the Reformed and the, the Roman Catholics apart, but also apart from the Lutherans, Right. and is the nature of the Lord's Supper yeah. and what happens at that time. So we're going to look at that.
1: Well, and I think it's a fitting then because we can we can we can see how much this was a central concern for them by the fact that they come to this passage through through those lenses.
0: Mm-hmm exactly, that this is part of part of that discussion. So, before I get into kind of that larger theological discussion there, I wanted to tell you about what happened this week, and I, I had someone come into my office, and she wanted to discuss um, how, you know, her Roman Catholic friends would not participate in communion at a Presbyterian church, you know, um, and, and they're told not to, um, but Presbyterian church, of course, has an open table, um, and one of the big, big reasons for this is because of this um, doctrine of transubstantiation, which is part of Roman Catholic practice. Um, but I thought it was interesting that she she told me, her Roman Catholic friends, look, we can't do this because not only do you not believe in trans- transubstantiation, but that you only view the Lord's Supper as a symbol. Wow! Um, and in their minds, it had no sacramental value. And of course, that's we know not that's true. not true yeah. <laughs> right but thinking about just how theologies can be misunderstood and i think the depth of theology that's misunderstood um, from the protestants trying to understand roman catholic tradition and, and vice versa is is very problematic yes indeed um, so it's amazing this sacramentarian debate Still divides Christians from serving together, mm-hmm. recognizes each other, recognizing each other's call and contributing together in the missio dei. And personally, I put blame on those who put the theological agenda against their call of Christ to unite Christians together in the Lord's Supper, and that desire to place their th- own authority um, over God's. Well, and
1: how ironic is it that it is it is the Lord's Supper and baptism that divides most christian denominations right. from one another exactly is that crazy or what exactly <laughs>
0: exactly so i bring this up today um as this passage is used to understand the nature of christ's risen body and in the eyes of the reformation this puts a lot of and i mean these reformers put a lot of time and energy into trying to define the nuance of the mm. sacraments um and again If again, the body, uh, the bread, and if the bread and the wine um, turn into the body and the blood, Mm -hmm. what does that really mean? And Mm -hmm. so this is a big deal in the Lord's Supper. Yeah. So, one of that, the question is um, what is the true nature of Christ's body? Um, and so this appearance on the road to Emmaus is one of the times we encountered the risen Christ. And so its passage is used. Sure. Um, so why important for the Lord's Supper and what does it have to do with Christ's body? Well, one of their questions is, where is Christ's sure. body? We know that in a Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, the bread and the wine turn into the body and bread of Christ. Physically, right. right? That's a very big it's deal the, in the it's tradition. It's the miracle of the mass. Exactly. One of the questions for the Reformers is how can Christ's physical body be two places at once? For Calvin and those of the Reformed tradition, they can't. Right. It's just not right. possible. Right. Um, and I, But I do think it's important that all Reformers reject this exact position. Sure. They regard the Roman Catholic practice of transubstantiation as magic and superstition Mm -hmm. and there are many others with this issues with this as well um that the roman catholic church does that because they they claim it that jesus dies over and over again you can't continue to he can't he only he he only died once he only rose once um that this continued sacrifice if you will but but we we emphasize as i said that Jesus died once for our sins and now reigns above for us.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you clarified that the the part about the Jesus dying over and over again. Because I, I I doubt that that a Roman Catholic would put it that way. I think the way they put it is that it it is a it is a representation of the sacrifice. So Jesus sacrifices Himself over and over again, and that maybe cut. May, we may we may say they're splitting theological hairs, but I do think they would they would say it differently. And yet, this seems to be the way that the reformers
0: right interpret they're, that. They're, Well, and again, they're going to come way at that, and they're going to be looking at this. And of course, part of the lore behind this too is that you know people could actually you know envision envision the um, the 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 Jesus they could see Jesus in in the wafer or they mm-hmm. could see the oh, actual right. blood, and so they they really make it kind of gory, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, for for us and. Um, so I think we um um I I think they're they're in a more visceral age as well. Sure. So in their minds sure. yeah, and, and Jesus can't be second Jesus isn't here to you can't. Right. It doesn't it doesn't right. it doesn't right. work that way. So
1: I can see their early modern mind spinning it over this.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? Oh I know. And I think what's interesting for us today is most of us kind of roll our eyes at wow, this is really yeah. really we're going to get upset about this, but we yeah. do, and and you well know if you're Protestant and you can't take mass, and it's it's a bit of a I mean in a way it's okay because you're like yeah I don't believe what they believe anyway but then part of it's like yeah but we're all Christians and we're not sharing the table together, and that can mm. be, mm. um, that can feel bad when you especially when you come from an open tradition that says all are welcome at the table yeah you know yeah. so yeah. so this is um. Um, so again, when we can trust the assurance of salvation that we have that we are indeed, and I think one of the big things is is you're not assured of your salvation at Roman Catholic Church. Right. so you read right. that mass
1: well, you have to that. every every week you have to renew that sort of uh, saving grace of, exactly. of of the mass right. you, know, you have to get your saving grace every week right. and and plus plus the other sacraments, right
0: right. so this is important in that sin cycle of the mm-hmm. Roman Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as, as, as Presbyterians, we say, you know, we have that assurance yes. every Sunday yeah. that we are saved once and for yeah, it all. It is an because,
1: assurance of pardon. Exactly.
0: Yeah, that's right. So these things are, are, are fantastic. Um, and also, um, in terms of interpretation of, of Reformers, when this happens, it, it, it hurts God's, the idea of God's sovereignty, Um, is because if, if God sending for the saving act of Christ, I'm sending his son to die, that's God in charge of it instead of this continued process. Well, and
1: you know, I get that because, um, one of the things that I think is important is to recognize the power of what God has done in Jesus, in His death and resurrection, mm-hmm. it is—it is a power that is enough to change the whole created order.
0: Exactly right. Exactly. And
1: and we want to bring it down and encapsulate it into what's going on on this table, and in terms of the forgiveness of individual sins, and that it almost—it almost makes what God is doing to too manageable you know and while they speak of it as the mystery and the miracle of the mass they kind of bring it into very manageable pieces right Right. instead of this big broad bold vision of salvation of transforming the whole cosmos you know right
0: exactly so moving on um well i mentioned that all reformers reject the position of the roman catholic church there are a wide range of nuances regarding what they believe happens during the supper and within does, the
1: reformation itself right egg,
0: oh yeah. yes all the way from you're right there are people that do see it as just a symbol in fact those churches don't even recognize the word sacrament they right. talk about no, the ordinances, ordinances mm-hmm. yes indeed um so my uh, my my good friend and 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 historian amy burnett Uh, writes about these nuances very articulately in um, her book, Karlsstaat and their Origins of the Eucharistic Controversy, a study in the circulation of ideas, a 2011 study, and it is one of the best. So if you want to (laughs) know every reformer and this wide range of discussions about how this works, they're out there, and every version of this um, is is there. But what I want you um, in in understanding this... um, a lot of it extends to Christ's body. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and as we have discussed before, now, obviously, Luther, our, our, one of our main reformers, puts the idea of the presence, that the body of Christ is under the, bed, under the bread, that it is not present in the Lord's Supper without the bread, that it needs a physical presence, but that the bread does not lose its properties of bread.
1: Mm. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Go figure, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Makes sense out of that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of people, I read this all over, particularly in theological instead of historical sources, that, that Lutherans believe in consubstantiation, mm-hmm. which is absolutely incorrect. Right. Incorrect. Right. It's in right. through and under the bread.
1: Right. That's right. not the same. Right. <laughs> it's not right. both. Right. It's in through and under.
0: Right. So, and there's so many, and, and there are reformers that do have this kind of more, this kind of consubstantiation, but it's not Luther um, yeah. concept, is that it's both at the same time, but that's yeah. not true here. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's good
1: clarification, thanks. Well, and there's yeah. so
0: many more, right? Calvin rejects this idea of Luther as well. Yeah. So, I want to look at how Calvin uses this passage to discuss the Lord's Supper. So, we encounter Calvin's discussion of Christ's body in the Institutes. He questions, what is the nature of Christ's risen body? Does it submit to the laws of nature? Um, so Calvin asks, is it swallowed up by his divinity? Calvin says, no. But Calvin does remind us that in this passage, Jesus says, well, beyond a little beyond where we were today, 2439, see and touch, for spirit has no flesh and bones. Right. So what does it mean for Christ's body? Is it invisible and infinite? And Christ's body everywhere and anywhere, all at once or at the right hand of the Father? Mm -hmm. These are all questions that Calvin asks. And in his opinion, the idea of a body ever-present takes away from the promise Mm -hmm. of resurrection, Mm -hmm. not only for Christ, but for us. Mm
1: -hmm. So if Christ appears, he can only be in one place at one time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. So in our passage, Calvin looks at the walk to Emmaus. In verse 31, Christ disappears, but does not make himself invisible.
1: Hmm, I wonder what the distinction is. <laughs> I, I guess it means that he really leaves. He's yeah, not he present. Leaves. He leaves. Yeah. leaves.
0: That's what that means. Yeah. And, and that was a part of the discussion. Is he, is he, is he disappears, But what happens to him, right? Right. Also, when he walked alongside the two on the journey, they don't recognize right. him. For Calvin, this is the appearance of a risen Christ who is physically there with them, but that he is not staying there is central right, too. Right, Calvin says his aversion to having the women touch him earlier on, remember the feet or, right. you know, don't touch me, Mary, means that he wants us to focus on the permanent residence of Christ in his ascension. uh
1: uh-huh. So Jesus, where the answer to the question, where is Jesus' body, is at the right hand of right God. Right hand of God. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, interesting. <laughs> interesting.
0: So for Calvin, the Lord's Supper does not have this physical bodily presence of Christ. It simply does not make sense, either in accordance with scriptures or his own concepts of reality. Mm-hmm. For Calvin, who is not a scientist, but he does believe that the natural world order as created by God should not conflict with scripture, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. Kind of modern. (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure. (laughs) I reject only the, he says, I reject only the obscure things which appear to be either unworthy of Christ's heavenly majesty or incompatible with the reality of his human nature, since they are unnecessary, so they are necessarily in conflict with God's word. For it also teaches that Christ was so received into the glory of the heavenly kingdom as to be lifted above all worldly estate hmm. and no longer carefully sets off his human nature those things which are proper to true humanity.
1: So lifted above all worldly estate. That's interesting, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. So now I think we can find holes in Calvin's argument. Sure. But here it just doesn't make sense that we are assured of God's presence uh, of Christ's presence with God, and then coming down to be present in the Mass. Yeah, yeah. So for Calvin, he says that the body and the blood are symbols in bread and wine, but that we can really receive the body and blood, which means this is this is a um, through the Holy Spirit, right? And he talks— through the
1: Word in the Spirit, exact
0: yeah. Word in the Spirit. Yes, right. and this just it comes down from Christ who reigns at high, but it doesn't ah. it doesn't come.
1: He's it, not there. He's physically. not there physically, mm.
0: but. He's using this tr- idea of Trinity really yeah. much. Is that, is that the, the, the persons of the Trinity aren't just out separated from one another, but right. that the Holy Spirit is connected to Christ, brings that. Well, the Holy Spirit is
1: the one who mediates Christ's presence to us yes, all. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah. So then Calvin argues that the sacrament feeds um, not so much our bodies, but our faith.
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: For it is enough for us, quote, for it is enough for us that from the substance of his flesh, Christ breathes life into our souls. Mm -hmm. Indeed, pours forth his very life into us, even though Christ's flesh itself does not enter into us. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And sounds very Calvin. It does. (laughs) And very reformed.
0: Yeah, very reformed. His point is that if we have to believe in the physical presence of Christ in order to experience Christ, then that hurts our entire faith. Sure. So Christ died once for our sins, is risen, and is with God. We trust this happened, and we trust that Christ feeds our faith from above.
1: Sure. Thanks, Christy.
0: Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back. And uh, as we started reflecting on these very two different segments, but we, we reflected that maybe we should be talking about how Christ is present for us today. And so I'm going to let Alan take this away and, and see what he can come up with.
1: Well, and if you think about um, Luke's setting, I mean, Luke is writing his gospel for a community that is living long past the resurrection. Decades past, at yeah. least the resurrection. Long can be a relative word, right? <laughs> From twenty centuries, <laughs> right. but decades past the, the 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 resurrection, and 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 um um you know, Culpepper in his commentary in the New Interpreter's Bible brings this point out. Is that part of he thinks part of what Luke is trying to address is this issue of how do Christians experience the presence of Christ now mm-hmm. slash how do Christians or pe- people who are, are moving toward faith, how do they have the, their eyes opened to be able to understand the scriptures and be able mm-hmm. to believe in Jesus? And, and because, you know, in, in one sense, they don't have access to the physical presence right. of Jesus right. because Jesus doesn't appear to us all, right? But then so how do they come to faith? And, you know, I think, I think there would be different people who would give different answers based on this text. Uh, some would point to um, um, the Eucharistic tones of, of him being at the table. Right. I don't think that's really quite the point. I, I think I like the idea more of we experience Jesus— as we live into the, the calling of the mission of the kingdom of God that he tried to uh, present to his disciples. For example, the whole idea that it was by extending hospitality to a stranger that Jesus you know, was with them and they were, they were yeah. able to recognize him, right? right. Or you know, the idea that every meal has the potential to be somewhat sacramental in that mm-hmm. you know it can become a place where we are sharing a fellowship among one another and and the, the you know Christ is present with us there not necessarily his in his resurrected body but through mm-hmm. the spirit you know mm-hmm. mediating his presence to us and and so i like that that very very again sort of a personal approach just mm-hmm. like the story is, because it's not like you have to you have to wait for the times when you're going to have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's not like you have to be in the right place. Uh, it is it is simply, you know, it is more the idea that when we are um, um, following the steps of Jesus, when we are. Um, replicating, shall we say, the ministry of Jesus, or uh, perhaps a better language for Luke and Acts is when we are extending Jesus' ministry by doing the things he did among ourselves mm-hmm. and among our, our communities, then then we are in a position of being able to experience the presence of the living Christ among us through the Spirit. Yeah, you know, and and, so, and I think that's that's part of what Luke wanted to say to his community was, you know, as we, you know, it's a little bit like the Matthew 25 of, of Luke. As we do these things that Jesus did, as we feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty and clothe the naked and, and do these things, then then we are actually uh, encountering the living Christ uh, through the Spirit's presence mm-hmm. among us. Um, I think the other thing that, that strikes me about this too though is we all constantly have access to the scriptures and it is through the scriptures that they're, they're they come to faith and but it is the scriptures as the living word right. enables them enables us to to understand right. and to hear the word of right. the lord in it
0: exactly right? exactly yeah i i it was just in conversation, you know, talking about if you just pick up the Bible itself. I don't think you're automatically just going to read that and you're going to suddenly believe. I just don't think you are, unless you read it through that lens. Of it faith. doesn't
1: always happen right. that way. It might. But some it people might. do. Right? It might. Yeah. I mean, and this is a this is a Reformed doctrine, right? The perspicacity of Scripture is that is that. You know the Scripture is sufficient to to lead one to faith, right? But my
0: logic tells me that very especially when doesn't you come always happen at that it, way. Especially when you come at it as again without even the eye, it's kind of like the invitation to Jesus to come. Eyes are opened. You know, it reminds me of that because. If your eyes aren't open to what the scripture contains, you're not going to get that out of it. Well, you know? I mean,
1: just we, we could say it this way: there are a lot of New Testament scholars who are not Christians. Exactly. And, yeah. but, and yet, they're they're they have spent their lives as New Testament Absolutely. scholars, right? They've exactly. studied this in depth. Yeah. Right.
0: Well, I mean, you know, for example, you know, as a historian, I could use the scriptures as you know, historical documents mm-hmm. and talk about them completely in the Christians believe this and the Christians believe that, mm-hmm. or I could talk about it, as this is what I believe because this has right. brought me into it. Right. And, and those are very different lines. And so I write very differently if I write as a theologian versus if I write as a historian, right. those are two different ways. Well, of And of I writing. think similarly,
1: when you come to scriptures from the perspective of faith, it makes a big difference, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and you know this was this has been this has been a hermeneutical principle in the church for centuries. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it goes yeah. back to Augustine,
0: absolutely, right? But it, it, I mean, I do think it's significant for for today as we think about these. I, I guess for me, when I read this particular passage, it's it that at that moment of these two disciples walking. Feeling the heaviness of the of the day, I mean, just being completely distraught, talking f- trying to find maybe some comfort in one another, but the kind of lost wondering where are we even going, and then the stranger shows up, and you know there's just something incredibly beautiful about that dialogue mm-hmm. i think and 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 for me it it touches me it's it's kind of. <laughs> It kind of reminds me of when I'm most lonely and when I'm most distraught. There is, there is Jesus right there. Mm-hmm. I have, have to open my, my eyes open, but right. there's Jesus. And I think for me, that's just why I love this passage so much. Sure, so, sure. Yeah.
1: Sure. And, you know, I, I think as well, um, you know, there is this, again, Luke presents the key to understanding for the original disciples as being able to understand that all the scriptures say that the Messiah had to suffer and yep, then enter into his they glory. Do, yeah. And again, for those of us who are raised in the church, that may not be so hard for us to believe because we're taught that from yes, the beginning, right? right. But for many people that it is a bit of a, of a of a contradiction in terms, you know, is he a savior or was he crucified as a criminal? Right. You know, right, it, right. it's one or the other. And and yet that becomes sort of the that becomes the key to unlock the door that becomes the lens to enable them to be able to open their eyes and see. Mm-hmm. And, and or open their minds and understand mm-hmm. not only those scriptures that point to this theme but all the other scriptures as well. Right. And so that whole idea and this is also this is a this is a, a, a hermeneutical principle that goes back centuries. Mm-hmm. You know, we understand the whole of scripture through the lens of Jesus, his life, his ministry, right. his Absolutely. teachings, you know, his right. focus on the kingdom of God. And so then he can say to them, you know, all oh, Uncomprehending ones and slow of heart to believe, right? right? So, so you know, the the idea is that, um, 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 in a sense, and it, and it becomes a kind of circular reasoning. I right. get this. You know, and, and some, some people who are maybe more philosophically oriented might say, you know, what you're talking about becomes a kind of circular reasoning. It does. I mean, because mm-hmm. you, really, you really have to come at the scriptures from a perspective of faith in Jesus right. to come away from them yes, yes. with your faith right. strengthened, right? right? And yet, that is the very hermeneutic that, that Luke is presenting. You exactly. Know, you yes. have to yes. you have to read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus right. ministry, what Jesus taught, what Jesus did extending right. hospitality to everyone, you know, his ministry to the least and the last right. and the left out, his his death, his resurrection. We have to we have to look at all the scripture through that lens to be able to really come away with it uh right. with with the truth of God.
0: I agree. I agree. And I would argue one of the hardest things to do is when you have that person who just doesn't believe Mm -hmm. and (laughs) this is a a acquaintance of mine and she's like i don't believe at all and so where does she go she goes to atheists and she reads their stuff on how it's not true but then she's still searching so Mm -hmm. hard and i'm like you know (laughs) part of that goes with a leap of faith. Part of that goes in a trust in your creation. Part of that goes to if you are out there seeking, look for somebody who can help you unlock the key instead of that can help you Jump into the possibility. I, I'm not even quite sure if that's the way to put it, but I just am always amazed at um, how many people say, "Well, I can't. I don't believe it." And I've got all these atheists out here who prove to me that mm-hmm. this isn't true, and I'm like,
1: uh, "You can make a logical argument you against can't, it,
0: absolutely." Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's Paul in the Corinthians that talks about that it's foolish foolish mm-hmm. to those who don't believe. Our preaching is yeah. foolish. Yes.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think for me at the end of the day and, you know, a lot of people come at this from trying to prove it. And I don't think that's effective. I think for me at the end of the day, it really boils down to a kind of an intuition. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of, you know, and, and the depth of my being when everything else, all pretense is stripped away, you know, and it's just me and, and, my destiny and, you know, life as it is with all of its wonders and tragedies. When it's just me there at the, in the depth of my being, it just makes sense that there is a, a God of unconditional love who is out there. uh, humanity, human relationships, human existence doesn't make sense otherwise to me. And and so that's where I start then as a way to be able then to, to build my faith of being able to say, sure, I believe in the scriptures. I believe in Jesus because he's the one who demonstrates most clearly God's unconditional
0: love. Yeah. And for me, it was just a way of aligning my life Mm because how I, how I, how I started. Right. And I thought, I have to align my life with something that makes sense and something that's hopeful. It's almost like a Pascal's wager kind Mm -hmm. of thing is how I really came to my own faith. But by aligning myself with the possibility, you know, (laughs) that's when that's when Jesus enters. Right. Well, Um,
1: and that's the key. You align yourself with the possibility. You align yourself with the with the with the. Hopeful trust, the trusting hope. I don't know that that mm-hmm. that that um, God's kingdom is the true reality in this world. Right, right. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us.
0: It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ.
1: We hope you'll tune in next week, and in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word.
0: word.